You're listening to B-Side, the podcast about the second acts and side hustles of rock musicians. I'm in a room full of toddlers at Top Pot Donuts in Bellevue, Washington. We're all here to see Casper Baby Pants. Okay, you guys, I'm going to start playing songs now. Yay! Casper, whose real name is Chris Ballou, is a children's musician, or as he likes to say, a parent's musician, making music the whole family can enjoy. Some of his more popular songs are about banana bread and a flea who has dogs. My flea has dogs. You don't know what's wrong. Oh, my flea has dogs. But before Casper Baby Pants was bringing families together through music, this was his gig. That's the smash hit, Lump, by the Seattle band The Presidents of the United States of America. Lump came out in 1995, and back then you couldn't turn on the radio or MTV without hearing it. A follow-up single, Peaches, was equally popular, and the band's debut album went triple platinum. The Presidents would go on to tour the world several times in the mid-90s, and they stayed with it on and off before calling it quits for good in 2015. The frontman for The Presidents of the United States of America is none other than Casper Baby Pants himself, Chris Ballou, and this is his B-side. Chris Ballou? Yes. Or should I say Casper Baby Pants? Both. Thank you so much for <laughs> sitting down and doing this today. You can call me Crisper Baby Lou. <laughs> I don't even know if I can remember that. Wow. So I was reading recently that you, when you set out with the presidents, you never kind of expected or wanted to find kind of fame and celebrity. It was a real uh, surprise. Yeah. I have a distinct memory of getting into a car with Dave, the guitar player, after a practice or something early in this process and looking over the hood at him. And he says to me, before we get in the car, it's so clear in my mind, he's like, you know, if a major label came along and wanted to pay us a bunch of money to sing these songs all over the world, I'd, I'd do it. I'd sign up. And I said out loud, yeah, me too. While thinking in my mind, you are insane. <laughs> Nobody's going to pay us a bunch of money to sing these songs all over the world. That's ridiculous. You know, uh, it's not going to happen. But I didn't want to crush his dreams, so I didn't say that. But, but you, were, you were welcome to it happening. You were, you were. I was, yeah. It was a nice feeling you know it was like this feeling of oh i'm not out of my mind i am actually i have actually spent my life toiling away you know sweating over a four track recorder for something that's turning into something but then again I, I had really cultivated a sort of a closed loop attitude about being a musician before the option of being famous came along which is that you know i write a song i perform it live i maybe i record it and make a little cassette at the time 80s the cassettes were big and that's it that was enough to sincerely make me feel successful 
and like I was a functioning musician doing my thing. So I carried that attitude with me all the way up to the president's and even up to signing with a major label. I, there was a lot about that process, about the smoke and mirrors, about the, you know, we had, a, we had seven labels after us, seven major labels, lots of dinners, lots of smoke being blown up our booties. And the entire time inside myself, I was like, this is, I'm at the wrong party. <laughs> I had this feeling like I was at a fancy party and I was underdressed and I was eating as much shellfish as I could possibly stomach before I get the tap on the shoulder and I'm asked to leave. It was unsafe. It felt unsafe. And certainly it wasn't comfortable to you. You just, no. it wasn't the place you wanted to be. I think it is pretty globally un an unsafe occupation. You got a lot of people with their fingers in your pie and a lot of people who don't have your best interest at heart. And navigating that while remaining creative and healthy is near impossible. I actually brought up with the guys in the band, why don't we just break up right now? Right, you know, right after our major label debut hit the stands. Just let's pull the Sex Pistols and just implode and freeze ourselves perfectly. That would be very punk rock. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course, I, I was voted down. <laughs> <laughs> by sheer popularity. I guess a band is somewhat of a democracy or a majority yeah, well, rules. That's a whole other thing I discovered. I'm not supposed to be in a band. Okay, so that's <laughs> we'll talk about that when we talk about Casper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But back in the early 90s, to kind of finish up this mm. theme, you had an apartment with Beck. You played in Beck's band. Correct. And you and Beck Beck's had band. had Beck's band. You had had conversations about fame and celebrity yeah. and its impact on the creative process. Yep. What was that? Well, that was interesting because the presidents had started, and then I got a phone call from an old friend from Boston who shared a publicist or a publisher with Beck, and Beck was a new sign signing for this publisher and for uh, Geffen, and they needed a band. He needed to put a band together, and this old friend of mine thought of me because I'm a multi-instrumentalist and, you know, comfortable on stage and all that. So she called me and said, hey, there's this guy Beck who's getting signed. You got to, you know, you got to be in his band. It was as if somebody calls you today or tomorrow and says, hey, there's this artist, Shuby Doobie Baba, who's getting signed. You're like, I don't know who that is. I don't care. Uh, so I ignored her. And like two months later, she called me like, no, no, no. He's coming to Seattle. You got to meet him. And so I did. I went to see him live. And we just hit it off immediately. We felt really like comfortable around each other. His backing track broke on one song at one of the shows he did in Seattle, and I jumped on stage, and we just improvised this weird harmonica tournament. <laughs> anyway, with all that as background, he invited me to be in his band, and I went down to L.A., and I lived with him because I was the only band member who wasn't from L.A., so he graciously let me live in his house, and... He had a four-track, which I didn't have at the time, and so I recorded on his four-track. I recorded with him. We wrote songs together, and whenever he had to do like a ramp-up toward the release date kind of radio appearance or something like that, he'd take me along, and I brought my little three-string banjo, and I was his kind of... We were a duo kind of for a while, which was super fun. Yeah, driving around L.A., that was the topic of conversation was like, for him, the transition between, as he told it, living in a cardboard box and eating food with his hands because he didn't have any forks... And working at a video rental store, he's transitioning from that to being on a major label and touring, and it was very disorienting for him. So he, he, he tried to keep his bearings by, he stopped drinking, he stopped smoking pot. He decided to dive into the world and really understand history. I remember touring in the, on the first tour, he was always in the back seat of the uh, van 
or near the back of the van with uh, Howard Zim's People's History of the United States, this giant book, just absorbing like culture. And he's like, I'm, I'm not going to let this float by. I'm not going to waste this opportunity. I'm, it's time for me to wake up was kind of his thing. So he really saw it as an opportunity to dig in and have a platform and like, you know, broadcast his particular uh, potpourri of weirdness. And, you know, we'd listen to the radio and talk about why the songs on the radio sucked. <laughs> Stuff like that. That would be we, fun to hear. We bonded over hating the same things about pop music. Yeah, so that was a good time. I would really like to talk to him again, actually. I haven't talked to him in a long time, and I'd like to check in. I'm going to L.A. in April. I might try to find him. So if you're out there, Beck, give me a call. My number's 555-555-5555. And then, Beck, call me, too, because I'd love to talk to you as well. <laughs> Fast forward a couple of years, you had the seven major label offers. The band blew up. You couldn't listen to the radio or turn on MTV without seeing I know. the Lump video or yeah. hearing Lump. Or peaches or something. I know. It was crazy. It was weird. I remember one time there was like the top 10 on MTV music videos and, and we were in between like Janet Jackson and Destiny's Child or something. <laughs> like, what are we right doing where there? You yeah, I'd like to be in between Janet Jackson and hey, it's a Destiny's family. Child. It's a family podcast. I had a little bit of a crush on Kim Rollins from, uh, from Destiny's Child. So if you're out there, Kim, give me a call. My number is 555. Okay. <laughs> There was a crazy video shoot with Roman Coppola. Yes, Roman. There was a concert at the foot of Mount Rushmore on President's Day. That is correct. How did all of this like <laughs> feel to you in the moment? Uh, again, unstable. Kind of scary. Kind of we like a, this constant feeling that any second I'm going to get a phone call or a tap on the shoulder and they're going to say, oh, we were just kidding. Your band isn't getting signed. Just a joke. <laughs> You've been punked. Yeah, so I just felt unsafe. I felt nervous and unsafe and happy and excited that the music was connecting with people. Like the shows were great because that's where I really felt like, ah, that's what I'm after. This like energetic dialogue with a giant group of people. I always felt like the songs weren't really the point. The songs were a tool to make a room elevate and the room elevating is the art. And the song is like a way to get to that feeling, you know? And there's something in there that pertains to what you're doing now with Casper, which yeah, we'll get into this idea of making music that the whole family can yeah. enjoy. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of thought behind why I do Casper, a lot of consideration. So we'll, and I wanna, I wanna hear, we'll, we'll get there. I want to hear about that after Stay tuned. we talk about the surreal moment that is Weird Al Yankovic Parodying Aww. lump. I'm sad alone on a bench in the park. My name is Forrest. He casually remarked, waiting for the bus with his hands in his pockets. He just kept saying, Life is like a box of chocolates. He's gump, he's gump. What's in his head? You're one of the <laughs> chosen few here that I know. Yeah, and it wasn't even a serious song. Usually he likes to dismantle a serious song, you know, make it silly. It was a pretty silly song to begin with, and he loved it so much he went ahead and did that. That was a huge honor. I mean, I'm... And we're good friends to this day. We struck up a friendship back then, and uh, yeah, we're, we're buds. He's a very cool individual. He's a great listener and thoughtful human being, and he made a video for the presidents, actually. He produced a video in 2004, I think it was for us so okay. we've collaborated and been creative together and 
Yeah. You have quite a creative Rolodex. Uh, Sir Mix-a-Lot is in there. Sir Mix-a-Lot, I know. Yeah, he is. Anthony, I love Mix. Mix turned me on to computers. I wouldn't be where I am with recording without him. He, he dragged me kicking and screaming into the digital age. So I th- thank you, Mix. And if you're out there, give me a call. <laughs> but Donna gave you some advice. And while we're on the topic of funny songs, and yeah, she gave you some advice that I think has carried through your career. Yeah. Yeah, it was very helpful. We, had a, we narrowed it down to two labels. It was going to be Columbia or Maverick, which is Madonna's label. So we end up meeting with her in uh, an office at Maverick, and she's great. She came to see us the night before at the Dragonfly in L.A., and she really got us. You know, she understood that we were appearing to... It's like we care deeply about our craft of songwriting without appearing to care at all when we're on stage. No, we have a, not a care in the world. So it's like this... She understood that there was a lot of work to sound like it was no work at all, you know? And uh, that was kind of how she came to give me this advice, because after the meeting broke up, we talked for a while, she communicated how you know, connected she was to what we were doing, and it was great. And then um, she kind of took me aside afterwards, and she said, look, even if you don't sign with Maverick, you should know that your songs are fun and funny, and because of that, you're never going to receive critical acclaim. It just won't happen. So don't wait around for that to happen. It was great, because it, came tr- it was true, and we really could only trust our relationship we had with our fans. We couldn't trust a lot of our business partners. I mean, Columbia, who we signed with, ended up stealing over a million dollars from us. And nobody cares about us like we cared about us. So that was kind of her thing. Is like, don't worry about it. Stick to what you know. Put your head down. Do the hard work. And don't expect to be recognized for all that hard work. Just do it because it's the right thing to do. And that stayed with you till... Oh, I think about it all the time. I mean, as I make these Casper albums, I'm alone in the studio and I I dig in and I do the hard work and Madonna's right there with me. So Madonna, if you're out there, give me a call. The number is 555-555. Fade out. (laughs) (laughs) I like talking on microphones. Yeah, it's fun, right? (laughs) You also scored a bunch of TV things and commercials, music for commercials. What... Yeah. What drew you to those types of opportunities? I mean, being a songwriter of, of things like this, I think the analogy you once said was it's kind of like being the guy who invents the recipe for bread. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's an idea I got from a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. You can either be the baker who gets up at 5 a.m. every morning, or you can be the guy that writes the bread recipe and goes to the beach while all the bakers use your recipe. So that was kind of my idea with the commercial stuff is let me make things that, let me spend time in the studio making things that go out and make me money rather than me going out just and touring all the time till my, you know, skeleton falls apart because <laughs> it's so exhausting. I'll start making things like intellectual property that goes out and functions and I just open checks. As opposed to the unsustainability of being on stage night in, night out. Yeah, in the, in, well, in the rock and roll world, it felt unsta- unsustainable because, yeah, it takes so much energy. I mean, the show we put on, I especially was just like a, you know, like a Mexican jumping bean at a piñata party. <laughs> I went nuts every night. And so, you know, I couldn't drink on tour because I had to really stay focused on the shows because we did five or six a week. So, and I would, you know, lose my voice and... So it was pretty stressful, too, because if I lose my voice or I get sick on tour, everyone's out of a job, you know. I felt a lot of pressure. That's true. They can't do yeah. like a, uh, like in excess, find the new lead singer kind of thing with the 
reality yeah. show. Although, I'll tell you, man, if the other presidents found another lead singer and went on tour, I'd be like, yes, do it. <laughs> that would be awesome. I would love to go to that show. <laughs> there was one opportunity, commercial opportunity, that you turned down early on. That was a ah, Sprite commercial. There were two, actually. There it was were... Independence Day, the movie, and, oh, right. and Sprite. They both came in in about the same week, and we said no to both. We said no to about half a million dollars. Do you regret that? Absolutely. <laughs> God. I learned later, who cares? I don't really care. I don't feel like it matters where the music's used. Like, you know, Tom Waits is notoriously against his music being used in commercials. I'm, I'm not on the opposite end of the spectrum, but I'm much more, like, tolerant now of whatever, whoever wants to use it. Yes, you can use it for a million dollars. Well, if it's any consolation, losing out on that money, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law fell in love over the song Kitty. Nice. I love it. So, I love hearing that. I love when songs are, my songs are responsible for starting a union. Well, they're still together, too. That's great. They just wanted you to know that. I love that. Thank you. Let's talk about Casper Baby Pants. Okie dokie. You've put out more than a dozen records now. Fifteen. That's more than a dozen. It is. <laughs> <laughs> It's Whitney Banner, circa 1942. And you call the genre family music. I would really like to call it parents music. Parents music. But there is no parents music genre, so I have to call it family slash children slash kids, whatever. Who, who do you see yourself, besides the kids, obviously, you must get some fun from this. You oh, yeah. see yourself serving something more. Absolutely. So when my kids were little, we did a thing called PEPS, Program for Early Parent Support. And this is like a uh, nonprofit that runs uh, parent education groups in neighborhoods. So like if I lived here in West Seattle, I'd be connected with, you know, half a dozen other families that had just had babies in this area. And we'd get together at different people's houses and there'd be a facilitator from PEPS who, and we'd, you know, have a chance to talk about things that were stressing us out or fears or what we were nervous about or having a hard time with or having a good time with and, you know, connect with parents. I saw that work for us. And then my my first wife, Mary Lynn, joined the um, board of PEPS. So for three years, she did that. And during that time, I made an album for them to use in the group settings. And then I just sort of noticed, like, this is an important thing. It's promoting an empathetic parent-child bond. And then I kind of extrapolated out through learning about this guy, Jeffrey Canada, who runs this thing called the Harlem Children's Zone. And his story it kind of blew me away. He started a parent education program in Harlem to undo the sort of culture of verbal and physical abuse that was that like knitted into that community. You know, kids were dismissed and dissed and ignored. And he did a huge study studying how these parents and kids interacted and the language they used and encouragements versus discouragements when they're at, at a very like young, impressionable age. And he realized that, you know, he had been working with teenagers as a counselor, and he couldn't help them. And he just realized, I got to get at them when they're babies. And to get at the babies, I got to get at the parents. So he started this parent education program, which then turned into a preschool and then into a kindergarten and into a middle school and high school. And the crop of people that he has now produced through his program are totally different from the people he was trying to save before. And it's really due to, in large part, the parent-child connection. So with all that in mind, I knew I wanted to do something that promoted that or that, like facilitated that connection. 
But at the time, I didn't know it was going to be kids' music. I just was very fascinated with that idea. Like, how do you save the world? So you save the babies and the parents, because then eventually they will be the world. You can't fix grown-ups. Grown-ups are already either, you know, fixed already or broken beyond repair. Long gone. <laughs> They're yeah, long gone. It. So don't try to fix grown-ups. Fix the babies. Anyway, eventually I married my second wife, Kate, and her artwork spoke to me like super clearly. I, I loved the quality of her artwork, and I thought, you know, I want to make music that goes that comes from that planet that her artwork comes from. So I used kind of that artwork as an inspiration, made this simple little bouncy song, <clears throat> and when I listened back, I was like, oh, it's kids' music. I should have been doing kids' music the whole time. Eight years before, I had made an album for Peps, but it didn't register at the time that that was what I was supposed to do. But I do remember making that album. It was like classic nursery rhymes, and I do remember feeling extremely relaxed as I made it. But it didn't dawn on me that this was a path. So anyway, I see Kate's art. I make the music. The light bulb goes off over my head, and I'm off and running. It's just like songs are just like pouring out. I'm reinterpreting classic songs. I'm looking at my old songs and realizing, oh, that's supposed to be a kid's song, and that's supposed to be a kid's song. And I was trying to make this song really important and avant-garde, but no, it's supposed to be a kid's song. Like which ones? Oh, all like tons, tons of them. Uh, you mean titles of the Casper songs? No, titles of the songs from your back catalog oh, man. should have been Casper songs. Uh, well, on my new record, there's a few. There's one, uh, I had a song called Emotional Cowboy, and I turned it into Emotional Robot for this new album. <laughs> God, I'm trying to think. I mean, off the top of my head, it's there's, so just, there's just too many to count. Uh, but if you're interested, people out there in the world, go to babypantsmusic.com and click on Song Stories, and you can read the history of every single song I have out, if you're curious. Anyway, so yeah, now I feel super great because... One of the things that happened in the presidents is I lost my bearings with the song's purpose. I knew that, you know, like I said, it was to make a room full of people go off. But then I was thinking culturally, like, where, what is this music for? What is it doing? How is it helping? And I know it was helping people feel good, but I wanted more. I wanted like a real down and dirty purpose. And this purpose, this idea that I'm bonding the family together with the music is really satisfying. I love it. And I, lo I get parents coming up to me all the time like, you know, I drop the kids off at school and I just keep listening to the album all day. And I'm like, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's great. So that's why I say I make parents music. I have them in mind maybe 85% of the time and the kids are about 15%. <laughs> but your first, your first live gig, was it, did you know this is what you should be doing? Casper gig? Yes. Your uh, first live no, Casper. my first live Casper, Casper gig was very nerve wracking. I didn't have my current setup. I had an acoustic guitar with a mic on it and I, you know, it went pretty well, but nobody knew who I was. And, you know, uh, it was at an all ages club in Seattle center called Vera. And, uh, no, it was thrilling and nerve wracking and it was filmed for a TV show or something. I can't remember who was filming it, but anyway, uh, it took me a while to get my sea legs. In fact, I hired a couple guys because I was so used to performing in a trio. I hired a couple friends to play with me for about the first, I don't know, couple of years or three years maybe. And then when I got my sea legs, I cut them loose because I wanted to play solo because I could respond to the moment easier by myself. And our, the music got a little loud and complex. And I want to make sure that my age range for this that I consider is like zero to six. And I want to make sure the zeros can come to the show and not be overwhelmed and like freaked out and, you know, hearing loss and all that. So, and nobody's freaked out by anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic banana bread, for example. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they kind of should be, shouldn't they? Well, what a great idea though. Yeah. Where does that come well, from? It's, it's a rich history. You know, they got the gingerbread man, the runaway pancake, you got all kinds of food jumping around in the history of uh, nursery rhymes. But and, not banana bread. 
No, actually, my dad wrote that song before he passed away. My niece, Lisa, was his caregiver in his later years, and she would always buy too many bananas. And they'd go brown, and she would make banana bread out of the brown ones, and my dad loved her banana bread. He wrote that song as a way of encouraging her to make banana bread all the time. And I found it in his stuff when he died. I didn't know about that song. He and I had recorded three or four songs together. I didn't know about it. I found it. I think it was just the first verse and the chorus, and then I wrote the other parts and set it to music. There was no music. Yeah, that's a co-write with my departed daddy. That's a really sweet story. Yeah, Yeah, I know. I love, every time I play that song, I think about him and... It's a nice connection to make. And you're doing a lot of covers of classic rock and roll songs that also work quite nicely given the Casper treatment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have two albums full of Beatles songs that I've got out, covers, that I, re- I reinterpreted them, you know, to a great degree. You know, uh, Rock and Robin, the song Rock and Robin is in the public domain now. Nobody renewed the copyright, so... That's going to be on a future album. I just tracked it the other day. So Casper sweeps in. Yeah, yeah. And takes rock and I bought a book. It's like, I don't know, like 99 songs that are in the public domain that you wouldn't think are. So I'm I'm learning some of those. Considering the fun and the goofiness of the presidents, this new iteration, this new career, (laughs) not a huge leap, I would imagine. No, it's a step to the left, you know? And then a step to the right. You put your hands on your hips. Yeah, don't get me started. I love that movie. Um, oh, there's the mail. Hey, Bill. That's the mailman, there's Bill. The mailman. Hey, Bill. Bill brings bills. Let's see. What were we saying? What am I saying? The idea that the, the Casper is... Oh, yeah. It's really the same core. I, I think of it, the analogy is like it's a planet. The presidents had an outer shell of loud drums, loud guitars, and sexual innuendo. But that was wrapped around an innocent core like a childlike vibe so i just took that shell off and now i just have the childlike core and you know in the president's i felt like our chemistry what made our hit songs and our good songs work was that friction between innocence and innuendo you know like is am i singing about a cat or am i singing about peaches or am i singing about something else but that was the product of a very specific time of my life and I could not repeat it. It's like I did a painting with my eyes closed and everyone's like, do more paintings. And I'm like, I don't know how I did it. I just did it, you know. So not only was I feeling unsafe and a little nervous about the whole environment, but creatively I felt like I could not reproduce what the lightning that that first record had captured. And I knew it wasn't going to get reproduced. That's why I was like, let's break up because then, you know, we don't have to make seven mediocre records. (laughs) Which we, we made, I think, I look, looking back and listening to our other catalog stuff, I really do love it, and a lot of people do love it. But And there was no way we are going to capture the zeitgeist in the same way. But anyway, inside me as a songwriter, I felt like nervous, and uh, like I didn't have the gags, or the, uh, the tools that I used to make that first record were not in my toolbox naturally, so I couldn't reproduce it. But... Pure innocence, pure joy, pure childlike. I could do that the rest of my life. That's me. So much more sustainable. Yeah. So that well, word again. And it's also just me. Like, it's honestly who I am, you know? I felt like there was a a level of pretend with the rock band that wasn't really who I am. I'm a guy who does the dishes and, you know, hangs out of my house and uh, walks in the rain. And I have simple aspirations, stepping out on a stage in front of 50,000 people, I had to put on another self that wasn't really comfortable. 
you entirely. Were, you were Casper baby pants all along. Yeah, I really was. I really, oh God, I wish I had figured this out in like 1992. I'd be so, I'd have like 37 records out by now. I'd be king of the heap. Well, keep at it and uh, you'll Someday. get there. I, I think I will. I think 20 is my, I've got 15 out. I've got three or four. I've got definitely two ready to roll right now and another one or two tracked and kind of humming in the background. So I think I'm going to get to 20. Excellent. Yeah. Chris Ballou, thank you so much for doing this. That's all? I could talk for another three years. Well, everybody out there, if you didn't get enough information, just give me a call. You know my number. I've said it five times on this thing. It's five, 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 five. Okay. Thanks, Chris. You bet. Casper Baby Pants even sings about what Chris went through. He's reworked Pop Goes the Weasel, and in his version, the weasel wrote a hit song in the 1960s and now is under pressure from his record company to come up with another hit and keep up with the Beatles. A slightly embellished but true story of what Chris Ballou went through with the Presidents of the United States of America. I'm Court Harson. Thanks so much for listening, and join me again next time for another edition of B-Side. <laughs>